the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Maupin engineering. Today we're going to talk with Peter St. Ange. He's a research fellow, regional economics at the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation on the likelihood that we're facing double-digit inflation this fall. We'll take a look at the 9.1% we currently have and what's likely to happen next. We'll also hear from Carlos and Rosemary Evans, their book, Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. And we'll share the account of Brenda Labsack. She is a teacher and uh, the head of an organization that attended the Teachers Union Convention a week or so ago. Her account of what she witnessed will inform parents of what to expect in the days ahead. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, some of the day's headlines. Donald Trump's ex-wife, Ivana Trump, passed away today. She was 73, the former president announced. I am very saddened to inform all of those that loved her, of which there are many, that Ivana Trump has passed away at her home in New York City. She was a wonderful, beautiful, and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life. Her pride and joy were her three children, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. She was so proud of them, as we were all so proud of her. Rest in peace, Ivana, Trump said via a post on Truth Social. Their son, Eric Trump, also issued a statement on behalf of the Trump family. It is with deep sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved mother, Ivana Trump. Our mother was an incredible woman, a force in business, a world-class athlete, a radiant beauty, and caring mother and friend. Ivana Trump was uh, was a survivor. She fled from communism and embraced this country. She taught her children about grit and toughness, compassion and determination. She will be dearly missed by her mother, her three children, and ten grandchildren. Ivana was born in what is now the Czech Republic in 1949. Well, the geopolitical map of the Middle East is changing fast. Iran's looming threats have prompted Israel and Sunni Arab states to cooperate against a common adversary. The U.S. policy changes are needed to support a regional realignment. And the president's trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, Iran's two chief regional rivals, is an opportunity to lay the foundation for expanded U.S.-led regional cooperation to defeat Iranian aggression. Well, on the eve of the president's trip to the Middle East, the Russian government announced that President Vladimir Putin would make his own trip to the region aimed at boosting ties with terrorism sponsor Iran and discussing issues related to Russia's brutal conflicts in Ukraine and Syria at a trilateral summit with the leaders of Iran and Turkey. The Kremlin announced that Putin will meet with the Iranian president uh, on the visit to Iran on the 19th of July. The two leaders share a hostile view of the United States, which they perceive to be the principal threat to their authoritarian rule and to their individual efforts to revive the Russian and Persian empires by subverting, intimidating and invading neighboring countries. As a result, both countries have been targeting the uh, targeted rather by U.S. sanctions and are cooperating to circumvent and undermine the effectiveness of those sanctions. 
In Mideast misspeak, President Biden added another gaffe to his record during his Israeli speech about the Holocaust. Visiting Israel on Wednesday, he mistakenly said we must keep alive the honor of the Holocaust. Well, the president made the flub shortly after touching down in Israel, kicking off a two-day visit with Middle Eastern countries' leaders. He corrected himself, and it was understood. Latinos are fed up. George Soros and Jill Biden put Hispanic voters and pundits in the spotlight. And cashing in, a liberal group has landed a massive taxpayer-funded contract to fight deportations. The left-wing not-profit um, it's working to end mass incarceration, landed a $171.7 million taxpayer-funded government contract that could potentially hit $1 billion to help unaccompanied minors avoid deportation. The Vera Institute of Justice, a New York-based group that supports defunding police and views immigration enforcement agencies as a threat to civil liberties, was awarded a Health and Human Services Fund contract in March to provide legal assistance to unaccompanied minors according to the federal database. The arrangement lasts until March of 2023, but can reach as high as $983 million if renewed until March of 2027, the agreement shows. Well, this appears to be the largest federal contract that Vera has secured for immigration-related services for any single year, dating back to the mid-2000s. Saying anywhere, anytime, climate activists say that they are expanding their tire slashing operation beyond New York City. The UK climate group, uh, whose members deflated tires on an estimated 40 vehicles in New York City last month, recently announced similar actions in cities nationwide. The tire extinguishers, as they call themselves, encourages activists to deflate tires of parked sports utility vehicles to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, said it has already spread to Chicago and San Francisco this month. Individuals affiliated with the group have deflated the tires of 20 SUVs in Chicago, another 20 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and 12 SUVs near San Francisco this month, according to the group. It can happen anywhere, anytime, a spokesperson said for the group, uh, speaking to Fox News Digital in an email. If you're reading this and you own an SUV, scrap it before we get to it, they went on to say. Lawlessness is an, an acceptable form of activism for many. Senator Maisie Hirano, the Democrat from Hawaii, is taking heat for her remarks, arguing there's no way to identify the founding fathers' thoughts on key issues when interpreting the Constitution, asking who the heck would know what our founding fathers meant. Well, the comment came during a Tuesday Senate Judiciary Committee hearing following last month's Supreme Court decision on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health and ignited criticism on Twitter after a clip of Hirano's remarks was shared online. Chaos ensued in the comments with critics noting the Constitution's straightforward language and using the Federalist Papers as another example of what the founders thought. For she's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and apparently has no idea what it means. Said one dumbest and most unread member of Congress, Federalist Papers, maybe, wrote Red State columnist Buzz Peterson. Podcast host Dan O'Donnell sounded off as well, responding to Hirano's questions by saying, people who know how to read, that's how you know what the Constitution means. We're going to take a break, but we will continue our march through some of the day's headlines. And coming up uh, in the second hour, Peter St. Ange, a research fellow on, well, inflation. What that 9.1 figure means and does it really reflect what people are experiencing and what's likely to happen in the months ahead? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a former CIA programmer was convicted on Wednesday of federal charges in connection with a massive Vault 7 theft of secret information provided to WikiLeaks and what the Justice Department describes as one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in American history. Joshua Adams Schulte was once a CIA programmer with access to some of the country's most valuable intelligence gathering cyber tools used to battle terrorist organizations and other malign influences around the globe. That's according to a statement released by the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams. However, when Schulte began to harbor resentment toward the CIA, he covertly collected those tools and provided them to WikiLeaks, making some of our most critical intelligence tools known to the public and therefore our adversaries. Williams of the Southern District of New York said, Moreover, Schulte was aware that the collateral damage of his retribution could pose an extraordinary threat to this nation if made public, rendering them essentially useless, having a devastating effect on our intelligence community by providing critical intelligence to those who wish to do us harm. Schulte, who chose to defend himself at a New York City retrial, told jurors in closing arguments that the CIA and FBI made him a scapegoat, scapegoat rather, for an embarrassing public release of a trove of CIA secrets by WikiLeaks in 2017. A federal district court in Ohio has granted a temporary restraining order for the entire class of the U.S. Air Force against the unlawful Department of Defense COVID shot mandate. Thousands of these service members who oppose receiving the shot due to their sincerely held religious beliefs have been denied their religious exemptions. In his order for Hunter Doster et al. versus Han Frank Candle et al., Judge Matthew McFarland stated that all active duty and active reserve members of the United States Air Force and Space Force, including but not limited to Air Force Academy cadets, Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps cadets, members of the Air Force Reserve Command, and any airmen who has sworn or affiliate or affirmed rather the United States Uniformed Services Oath of Office and is currently under command and could be deployed, who submitted a religious accommodation request to the Air Force from the Air Force COVID-19 vaccination requirement, where the request was submitted or was pending from September of 2021 to the present, were confirmed as having had a sincerely held religious belief by or through the Air Force chaplains and either had their request accommodation denied or have not had action on that request. Well, he also wrote the proposed class satisfies the B2 requirement. Defendants attempt to characterize the relief sought as uh, hinging on individualized determinations concerning their religious accommodation requests and sincerely held religious beliefs. But the relief the proposed class seeks is the same, a religious accommodation relating to the COVID-19 vaccine mandate, and they have been harmed in essentially the same way. So the court has granted Air Force Service members relief from that mandate. A conservative legal organization filed a federal civil rights complaint against Dick's Sporting Goods on Thursday for sponsoring staff abortions while failing to provide equivalent paid maternity care for employees. America First Legal asked the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to open a civil rights investigation into the company, alleging multiple violations of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It prohibits discrimination based on parental status. Well, after, this, after the decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned Roe v. Wade, 
Dix announced a special employment benefit of up to $4,000 in travel reimbursement for an employee, a spouse, or dependent enrolled in their medical plan, along with one support person, to obtain an abortion. Well, the legal group claimed that the retailer discriminated against mothers who decide not to terminate their pregnancy by not offering them an equivalent benefit. It called the project wholly detached from the company's business of selling sporting goods and golf equipment, which in turn may needlessly destroy shareholder value. Now watch with interest what happens in that uh, that suit. Well, with eyes to the sky, the House, who apparently didn't have anything better to do, voted for an amendment to make it easier to report UFO sightings. The House on Wednesday voted for an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, making it easier to report unidentified flying objects or UFOs. The amendment creates a secure reporting system for UFOs and would also prevent unauthorized public reporting or compromise of properly classified military and intelligence systems, programs and related activities. I know I feel better. Solution is at home. Energy reps say that they are tired of being vilified as the president asks Saudis for oil help. Calling out uh, pure evil, Twitter blasted a House Democrat witness who called abortion an act of self-love. Calling him the former guy, uh, Politico reports Joe Biden can't escape the legacy of Donald Trump in the Middle East. You know, the former guy. In Los Angeles, the LADA's uh, head-scratching excuse for not telling victims about parole hearings. Well, the Los Angeles County DA Gascon, who is um, facing a recall campaign, is disbanding a group of victim advocates and prosecutors in the DA's office who notify victims and their family members about their assailants' parole hearings. The parole unit, also known as the Lifer Unit, will be disbanded by the end of the year. Of course, he may not be in office by the end of the year. The move comes as Gascon has banned prosecutors from attending parole hearings. His office confirmed the move, saying that the that notifying the victims can be triggering to them, that it uh, bogs down resources and that ultimately it is a responsibility of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. While a victim has a right to be notified, they also have a right not to be notified. A suspect is being sought by a a convenience store chain offering a $100,000 reward for information on a string of deadly robberies. A Louisiana judge blocked the state's trigger ban and temporarily reinstated abortion on demand. Hot Air reports that Baton Rouge District Judge Donald Johnson ruled on Tuesday that abortion is legal in Louisiana. The ruling blocks the state's trigger ban, at least temporarily. Judge Johnson's temporary restraining order was granted to the Center for Reproductive Rights, A hearing on the case is set for July the 18th. Like other states that passed trigger bans to go into effect if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in its ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson's women's health, Louisiana has been in legal limbo. This is how the near future will look for states trying to restrict abortion access, lawsuits, and restraining orders. It means that abortions may or may not be available in pro-life states, depending on which restraining order or judge's ruling is in effect. In Louisiana... The abortion provider and another LLP filed suit against the state trigger ban set to go into effect immediately after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, the two organizations requested emergency relief to allow abortion providers to continue to provide their service. A judge temporarily blocked the trigger ban, but that order was lifted when the lawsuit was moved to a different court. Judge Johnson's ruling on Tuesday puts a temporary restraining order back in place. 
The Attorney General, Jeff Landry, says to have the judiciary create a legal circus is disappointing and what discredits the institutions we rely upon for a stable society. The New York Times also weighed in, writing that Louisiana's state constitution is unusual in that it explicitly says it does not provide a right to an abortion, meaning the legislature has the right to pass laws restricting it. But abortion providers in the state argue that the trigger laws violate due process provisions in the Constitution and are void for vagueness because they do not provide specifics about what is legal or not under the law. My guess is the legislature will address that in their next session. The Consumer Price Index rose to a 40-year high at 9.1%. The Wall Street Journal weighs in. The Consumer Price Index rose 9.1% in the 12 months ending in June. The fastest pace since November of 81, the Labor Department said on Wednesday. The June increase also eclipsed May 8th, uh, or rather May's 8.6 rate, uh, percent rate, which uh, led Fed Reserve officials to shift to a faster pace of benchmark interest rate increases in its campaign to bring down inflation. We'll talk more about that with my guest in the second hour, Peter St. Ange. So stick around for that if you can. The report likely keeps the Fed on track to raise its benchmark interest rate by 0.75 percentage points at or percentage point. That's less than one point at its uh, meeting later this month. Stocks dropped. Bonds yields uh, jumped following the inflation report as well. Immigration officials are pushing to provide abortions for detained migrants. Again, the Wall Street Journal writes top immigration officials are planning to instruct detention centers around the country that women in custody are entitled to abortions and should be transferred to receive one if they are being detained in a state about where abortion is now illegal. The directive is contained in an undated memorandum seen by the Wall Street Journal, which cites the recent Supreme Court decision that ended the federal right to an abortion. The memo is from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Acting Director Tay Johnson and is addressed to Corey Price, head of the agency's enforcement division. This memorandum serves as a reminder of existing ICE policies and standards requiring that pregnant individuals detained in ICE immigration custody have access to full reproductive health care, as if abortion is reproductive health care, the memo said. Well, I said that part. This is also a reminder that pursuant to existing ICE policy, it may be necessary to transfer a detained pregnant individual, a woman, Uh, within an area of responsibility. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Second hour, we're going to talk about the uh, inflation rate, 9.1%, at least at this point. And we'll hear from Carlos and Rosemary Evans. They're a book, Standing Together, The Inspirational Story of a Wounded Warrior and Enduring Love. We'll also share the observations of Brenda Lebsack. She's a teacher from California. She uh, attended the Teachers Union Convention and shares what she observed. Well, an illegal immigrant in Ohio has been arrested after confessing to assault, sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl. The skeptical story panned out, and in the end, a monster is taken off the streets. Well, the man charged with uh, assaulting a 10-year-old girl in Ohio in, is a Guatemalan uh, immigrant. An immigrant and customs enforcement uh, source has now said the Columbus Dispatch first reported that Gerson Fuentes was arrested after police said he confessed to sexually assaulting the girl multiple on multiple occasions. And her story became known as a, an example of why abortion ought to remain legal. 
Apparently, however, she uh, could have remained in her state rather than having to cross state lines for the abortion that the story centered around. Democrats blocked Republican efforts to prevent Supreme Court expansion. House Democrats blocked a Republican request on Wednesday that would have prevented the expansion of the Supreme Court. The Republican resolution proposed an amendment to the Constitution requiring the Supreme Court to be composed of nine justices as it has been the past 153 years. Representative Tom Cole pointed out on Wednesday. Fundamentally changing the composition of the court to satisfy the demands of one political party would permanently erode the independence of the judicial branch and forever alter the separation of powers, which is the very foundation our Constitution and our nation were built upon, Cole warned. But Democrats blocked the resolution on Wednesday. Congressman Kelly Armstrong said progressives want to pack the Supreme Court to get their extreme wish list while they focus on headlines and fundraising pleas. They know their radical policies are unpopular, so they seek to avoid responsibility and have unelected justices impose them. And uh, House Rules Republicans said House Democrats just blocked the House GOP request to uphold the 153-year-old composition of the court, protect the balance of power and prevent the judicial branch from being subjected to political whims and wishes of one party. Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Aaron Hawley defended crisis pregnancy centers from attacks by left-wing critics. Katie Pavlich said, testifying in front of the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday morning, Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Aaron Hawley pushed back against false allegations and smears being hurled by the left against crisis pregnancy centers. Greg Price says that Warren... Uh, quoted Warren, crisis pregnancy sitters that are there to fool people looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down all around the country. Interestingly, these crisis pregnancy centers receive no public money, uh, money, no funds at all. They are uh, supported by supporters. Mary Margaret Olahan says Eric Hawley, ADF senior counsel, addresses Criticism of pro-life pregnancy centers, they're not fake centers. In 2019, they served 1.85 million families, provided $266 million worth of goods, car seats, baby formula, diapers, things women really need. An alliance defending freedom on its own behalf says an abortion is a situation in which a child is purposefully put to death. Neither miscarriages nor medical emergencies nor ectopic pregnancies involve that situation. Again, a quote from ADF senior counsel Aaron Hawley. Los Angeles lawmakers are looking to remove Sheriff Villanueva because of his stance against progressive policies. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors on Monday directed its attorney to draft a proposed ballot measure to give the body the power to remove Sheriff Villanueva following repeated clashes between both parties. The board voted four to one with Supervisor Catherine Barger uh, casting the lone dissenting vote. The matter would still need final passage from the board for it to be put into Uh, In front of voters on the 8th of November, if passed, it would give the panel the power to remove an elected sheriff, an elected sheriff for cause with a four fifths vote. In a Monday letter to the board, Villanueva blasted the proposal, calling it a recipe for corruption. He further said it would allow board members to intimidate sheriffs from carrying out their official duties to investigate crime. Sri Lanka's president has fled the country, leaving an extremely unpopular prime minister in command. The Associated Press uh, reports that Sri Lanka's president fled the country on Wednesday, plunging a nation already reeling from economic chaos into more political turmoil. Protesters demanding a change in leadership then trained their ire on the prime minister and stormed his office. 
The president and his wife left aboard an Air Force plane bound for the Maldives, and he made his prime minister the acting president in his absence. That appeared to only further royal passions in the island nation, which has been gripped for months by an economic meltdown that's triggered severe shortages of food and fuel. Thousands of protesters who wanted prime minister uh, to go had anticipated that he would be put in charge. They rallied outside his office compound and some scaled the walls. The crowd roared in support for the people charging in and tossed water bottles uh, to them. The BBC points out that the president's departure threatens a potential power vacuum in the country, which needs a functioning government to help start digging it out of financial ruin. Politicians uh, from other parties have been talking about forming a new unity government. But there's no sign uh, that they're near an agreement yet. It's also not clear if the public would accept what they come up with. And we'll continue to follow that story. When asked, President Biden claims Democrats would vote for him, even though multiple polls indicate he is vastly unpopular, even in his own party. The New York Post writes that President Biden lashed out at a reporter who asked what he would say to Democrats who don't want him to run for a second term on Tuesday, insisting that the party is behind him, despite a recent survey showing nearly two thirds of its voters want a different nominee in 24. They want me to run, the president said at 79 during a White House congressional picnic. Read the polls. Read the polls, Jack, he said. You guys are all the same. That polls showed that 92 percent of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. Well, recent polling shows 64 percent of Democrats prefer a new Democrat candidate. Pew Research says that among the overall public, 37 percent say they approve of the president's job performance, while 62 percent disapprove. More than twice as many adults strongly disapprove of the president's job performance as strongly approve at 45 percent versus 18 percent. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has declared a state of emergency following flash flooding, leaving 40 people missing. I, I think I read later in the day that all 40 have been re, have been located. But as of earlier today, the Virginia governor declared a state of emergency in the wake of devastating floods in Buchan County uh, that damaged or destroyed more than 100 homes and left approximately 40 missing. He declared a state of emergency for first responders to assist residents impacted by the heavy rainfall and severe flooding, which began hitting the southwest region on Tuesday night. The U.S. and Israel agreed to prevent Iran from getting nukes. As Joe Biden left for his trip to Israel in the Middle East on Wednesday, he was asked about Iran's effort to gain nuclear weapons and if the U.S. would use military force to prevent it. As a last resort, yes, Biden answered, adding, the only thing worse than, the, than Iran that exists now is an Iran with nuclear weapons. Upon arriving in Israel, the president declared that the U.S.-Israel relationship was deeper and stronger than ever. The connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep, he said. According to administration officials, the president's reason for going to Israel was to sign a new joint agreement that includes a commitment to never allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon and to address Iran's destabilizing activities, particularly threats to Israel. Meanwhile, the president is still stumping to reestablish Barack Obama's bad Iran nuclear deal, which would, in fact, allow Iran to become a nuclear power uh, in just a matter of years, arguing unconvincingly that Donald Trump's decision to pull out of it was a gigantic mistake. He asserted they're closer to a nuclear weapon now than they were before. Thanks, of course, to the Obama uh, to Obama's terribly conceived Iran nuclear deal. 
President Biden's Department of Energy hired a drag queen to a top position. A whistleblower in the Department of Energy rather recently alleged substantial irregularities in the agency's hiring of Samuel Brenton, a man who was a drag queen, LGBTQ plus activist, and had also defended underage homosexual prostitution. Brenton was hired to a top position within the Department of Energy, which gives him a top secret Q clearance and a taxpayer funded salary of one hundred and seventy eight thousand sixty three dollars, putting him on the top one percent of federal salaries. The trouble beyond his um, advocacy is that he has little educational background or work experience to justify such a high position and salary. The whistleblower complaint notes that undue political influence and preferences were applied to secure Brenton his undeserved position. His background is limited to select advocacy work and an academic background at the graduate degree level, which together satisfy requirements for the competitive placement of a qualified GS-11 in federal career service, not a high-standing member of the SES, Senior Executive Service. In other words, this hire smacks of cronyism and favoritism as government hiring rules appear to have been broken in order to elevate him to such a high federal position. The whistleblower called on the Office of Personnel Management to investigate. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour after news and traffic, Peter St. Ange will talk about the inflation rate and whether or not it's likely to go up. We'll also hear from Carlos and Rosemary Evans, co-authors of Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. And we'll share the observations of Brenda Lebsack. She's a California teacher. What I saw at the Teachers Union Convention. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Congress is grappling with looming Obamacare premium hikes ahead of the midterms and wholesale prices shot up near a record 11.3 percent in June on the surge in energy costs. A Secret Service agent on Biden's Israel trip has been detained and sent home after an alleged physical encounter with a woman. ICE plans to offer detained migrants abortion services and border deaths surge under the current administration compared with the former president, Trump uh, presidents, plural Trump or Obama. Climate activists plan to expand their tire slashing operation beyond New York City and have already done so. Two new studies drain the juice out of the president's electric vehicle shtick. Uh, Joe Biden and Democrats continue to lecture everyday Americans about the nirvana of electric vehicles. Americans who remain outraged over his skyrocketing gas prices. Well, now two new studies suggest that Biden and the Democrats either don't know what they're talking about or aren't telling the full truth or both. Both possibilities would be shocking. Based on separate studies published by the National Bureau of Economic Research and J.D. Power, electric vehicles are worse for the environment than gas-powered vehicles, and battery electric vehicles, EVs, and plug-in hybrid vehicles have more quality issues than gas-powered vehicles. It's a fascinating report if you can uh, if you can read them. Sri Lanka is what happens when. Countries fail to realize green policies aren't working. The fuel has run out in Sri Lanka, with tuk-tuk drivers being forced to wait for days just to fill their 8-liter tanks. Power blackouts are a daily occurrence. The inflation rate in Sri Lanka reached a whopping 54.6% in June. And the growing cost of food, clothing, transportation, and electricity, some of which are three times the normal price, has tanked the value of rupee. 
uh, Beijing, or rather being an island country, catching fish, fresh fish instead of buying food would be a relief, but there's no diesel to go out to sea to fish for them. This crisis in Sri Lanka started in 2019, run down by years of gross mismanagement over successive governments. Sri Lanka was saddled with mounting debt and inadequate production rates. The 2021 inflation surge that has grown into a full economic crisis is in no small part thanks to climate radicalism. Convinced by European Green Deal propaganda, the Sri Lankan government implemented a ban in April of 21 on the main thing propelling its agricultural-based economy, chemical fertilizer. On an island of 15 million out of its 22 million people, they rely on farming. Over 90% of them had used chemical fertilizer prior to the ban, which went into effect immediately with no time for contingency planning. By the time the government realized its mistake, it was too late. One third of the farmlands lay dormant in 21 and 85 percent of farmers faced crop losses. Small farmers bore the brunt of the burden and reported a 50 to 60 percent decrease in yield. Carrot and tomato prices increased by five times their original price. Sri Lanka's rice production fell by 20 percent and prices jumped 50 percent in a span of six months. Formerly self-sufficient in rice shortages forced Sri Lanka to import $450 million worth of grain. Worst yet, the fertilizer ban hit the tea industry its second highest export. The president gave up his goal to be the first nation to fully embrace organic farming and rescinded the ban in November of 21. But the damage was already done. Sri Lanka's stellar ESG score, the United Nations metric of investments, made following um, supposedly better environmental, social and government standards, isn't doing its people much good. Even the European Union, which promoted these green policies, is noticing the Green Deal isn't a good one. Earlier this month, after solar and wind-derived energy failed to keep Europe's gas prices down, the EU voted to include some nuclear and natural gas power under the label of green energy. Rather interesting um, thing to watch over time. Well, on this day in history, 1789, in an event symbolizing the start of the French Revolution, Citizens of Paris stormed the Bastille prison and released the seven prisoners inside. 1798, U.S. Congress passes the Sedition Act, making it a federal crime to publish false, scandalous or malicious writing about the United States government. Well, that certainly is no longer in force. Seven, or 1976, Jimmy Carter wins the Democratic presidential nomination at the party's convention in New York. 1980, the Republican National Convention opens in Detroit, where presumptive nominee Ronald Reagan tells a welcoming rally he and his supporters are determined to make America great again. 2003, newspaper columnist Robert Novak publicly reveals the CIA employment of Valerie Plame, wife of Joseph Wilson, a former U.S. ambassador in Africa, who said the administration had twisted pre-war intelligence on Iraq. 2013, thousands of demonstrators across the country protest in Florida. Uh, Florida jury's uh, decision to clear George Zimmerman of the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. 2016, terror strikes Bastille Day celebrations in the French Riviera city of Nice as a large uh, truck plows into festive crowds, uh, killing 86 people in an attack claimed by Islamic State extremists. The driver is shot dead by police. Finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump squares off with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and progressive freshman congresswomen on Twitter, telling the new lawmakers to go back to their countries of origin to fix the corruption plaguing those nations before they lecture the United States. It was not a popular statement. When the Hampton Battery was dedicated here in 
1871 in Pittsburgh to a young Civil War soldier who lost his life protecting the Union at Chancellorville, Virginia. The granite monument was a point of pride for residents in the neighborhoods nearby. They would stroll along the trails and the lush parks filled with trees located across the street from their homes along Cedar Avenue to honor the local heroes. Well, today, the Battery's founder, Captain Robert B. Hampton, who was remembered by the men who served under him as a born commander with the chivalric nature of an honorable gentleman, is now part of a different carnage in America as he uh, stands watch over an open heroin market that's taken over the once Grand Park. Residents say the Civil War statue is literally surrounded by drug dealers, buyers and users around the clock. They're getting more aggressive with panhandling, trespassing and theft. Just yards away along the old Pennsylvania Canal, a man walks down the street carrying a brand new patio chair stolen from the porch of a nearby home for the new and growing homeless camp. Last week, there were two tents or makeshift abodes. Now there are dozens on the sidewalk. A woman dances erratically in her socks, her um, hoodie pulled over her head. She then abruptly collapses in the street. Within minutes, the medics arrive and she is revived. She then continues to uh, on despite having overdosed minutes earlier. Heroin and opioids make people desperate. Yet all that residents say uh, say they hear from elected leaders is we can't do this or we can't do that. No one is saying let's try this or we need to come up with a solution. Last week, the city of Pittsburgh announced that it was decla- uh, rather delaying the uh, opening of the Sioux Murray City Pool, where hundreds of children, predominantly black and often living below the poverty line, would normally be enjoying uh, each other's company and a cool dunk in the pool. Instead, it shuttered. City officials say the reasons is that there aren't any lifeguards to fill the positions. Parents say it's because of the dangers their families face just walking the 50 yards from their homes to the commons, a federally subsidized housing development to the pool. Law-abiding citizens in the neighborhood, black and white, say they don't understand why they, their peace of mind, their quality of life, safety, respect, and dignity have to be sacrificed so that clever decision-makers, politicians, can continue to ignore the massive drug problem nearby. In the past two years, there have been a catastrophic rise in drug deaths in the country, a record 107,622 people and counting in the United States died from overdoses. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there's been an equally catastrophic rise in crime in the country as well. This ugly reality will affect the elections this fall, probably far more than the politicians and the political class understand. Why? Because they never take the time to walk down a street like Cedar Avenue and ask how it's going. More importantly, they take for granted that they will always have the voters they have always had, never realizing most people have a breaking point, and perhaps there and other places across the country, the American people have reached a breaking point. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour, and then a conversation with Peter St. Ange. He's the uh, Research Fellow in Regional Economics uh, for the Center of Data Analysis. We'll talk about the inflation rate and a couple standing together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. But first, news and traffic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, an inflation rate of 9.1% is devastating, but the official rate doesn't even fully capture just how bad the situation is. Lower income families, working Americans are being especially hard hit by skyrocketing prices on things like food and gas and housing. 
I probably don't need to tell you that. Well, the president's war on affordable energy production is the main culprit for both the high gas prices and skyrocketing food prices. It's growing more and more unaffordable to make it in Joe Biden's America. Well, here to talk about where we are at this point, where we're going, and to get a, a clearer perspective on the cost, the high cost of the president's um, war on affordable energy, um, the main culprit behind all of that, is Peter St. Ange. He's a research fellow at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I think for most of us, um, it's difficult to put into perspective what a 9.1% inflation rate actually means. And in the broader context, some of the other figures that we're hearing that sound actually pretty good, but translate into a much uh, more challenging economic profile than we may fully appreciate. Let's start with the official data that we got on Wednesday regarding the inflation rate in June, which was 9.1%. That's over the, the past year. It's a 40-year record high. Help us to understand what that means. Right. So uh, that's something that we really haven't seen since the 1970s. Uh, a lot of us thought that we were done with, uh, with those days. Uh, the problem with it is that the 9.1 number doesn't really capture all of the pain that's going on. Uh, probably the single biggest thing that they sort of play around with is uh, how they count uh, rent and house, uh, housing costs, right? So they claim that those are up about 5% over the past year. Well, rents are up 20 to 25%. House prices are up uh, 20 to 30%, depending on where you are. There is no way that shelter prices have only gone up 5%. And, you know, they, they, they have kind of this wonky way where they can uh, play with the numbers. Now, the second way they do it is that if prices go up and people stop buying steak and they switch down to hamburger, right, or they keep going, they go from hamburger down to eggs, right, as people um, sort of go into cheaper things, they just go ahead and change out the numbers and they say, oh, okay, well, now we can just forget about steak because people aren't eating it anymore. So they call this hedonic adjustment. It's very cute uh, because what it ends up doing is putting out a number that looks a lot lower than what people are actually experiencing in their life. Right. So, you know, um, leading in, uh, you mentioned some of the usual suspects there. But right. We're looking at 12 percent on food. We're looking at 20 to 25 percent on rent. Uh, there are a number of food products. You know, pork is up 17 percent. Eggs are up 33 percent. And gasoline, of course, is up around 60 percent at this point. Yeah, it really is staggering. I was listening to an interview yesterday in which a woman said, I have become a vegetarian because I simply cannot afford to buy meat. So if you factor in what you've just described, that would uh, that would suggest, well, things aren't quite so bad because people just aren't buying meat. They're they're going vegetarian without really acknowledging that she's gone. She's gone vegetarian by her own admission because she can't afford what she's used to eating. Exactly. And that's the key to it. She didn't go vegetarian because she likes vegetables. She went there because meat was too expensive. This is not a good thing. This is not a good way to control prices, to force people to start, you know, going down the curve and eating cheaper and cheaper things. I mean, that's that's how a country begins to regress to a uh, poorer state. Uh, that is not a good thing. Europeans are doing that. Um, you know, at the moment, they're uh, swearing off air conditioning and, you know, we we do not want to go there. Now, we've heard that 
um, you know, the, the pinch that we're feeling is actually the, the, the transition we can expect to a more liberal order, that this is a, this is really good for us. It's like a parent saying, no, you can't have more candy because it's not good for you. So we're actually moving in a direction that is in our own benefit. How do you respond to those kinds of justifications for uh, the pain that people are feeling at the pump, at the grocery store and elsewhere? Yeah, it's really amazingly insensitive. Uh, you know, first off, it kind of comes from this anti-human philosophy where there are these people, they're just offended that humans exist. You know, uh, any, anything humans do, you know, if we go out and fish, you know, if we go out and hike in the woods, they're just horrified by this because Mother Earth must be purified and free of humans. Uh, but, you know, uh, sort of zooming in, when they talk about these fantasies where, you know, we'll all eat bugs and such, well, who's going to be eating the bugs? It's not going to be Bill Gates. It's not going to be the billionaires who are eating bugs. They're, they're going to still have their stakes. It starts with working class, right, with people who are struggling already. So that's who's going to enjoy this utopia of theirs. They, you know, you see today with climate, right? They want to knock out uh, airfares so, you know, they keep the riffraff out of uh, Switzerland. And then they can go in there with their private jets and enjoy it. Yeah. And, and you know, this this notion that humans are just a, a pockmark on on the earth with a few rare exceptions that would begin with them and then a few select others. We heard from the administration early on that inflation was going to be transitory, that this was a temporary thing and uh, we should expect things should change rather quickly. Looking ahead, what do you anticipate happening given where things stand now? Right. That, that transitory language, they always pull that line out. Uh, in the 1970s, last time they screwed up, they said, no, 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 it's overpopulation and we're running out of everything. They always have the excuses. They pull whatever's in the headline. So they're just covering themselves. What we are probably going to experience going forward is at least another year or two uh, of you know what we're seeing now. Uh, inflation is going to continue. The problem is that the two main things that are driving it, right, which are the war on production that you mentioned earlier on, on uh, you know, energy, but also on farmers, on manufacturers, on truckers. There's just these rivers of regulations come out. A lot of it is green mumbo jumbo. So that's crushing production at the same time as they are pushing out these trillions. You know, the uh, Green New Deal, it was supposed to be $93 trillion. So when you're flooding money in and you're crushing production, you're going to have inflation from both of those. And the problem is that this administration, that's, that's all they got. Their entire project is to either crush the real economy or to, you know, buy votes and flood trillions out. And both of those, the only thing they do is drive inflation. So unfortunately, I think that there's going to be a lot more pain to come. Well, you might be somewhat mistaken because we all know that really the pain at the pump is uh, Vladimir Putin's fault, that he is ultimately responsible <laughs> for, for what, we're, right. what we're paying. Yes, Putin uh, hit my keys. Uh, yeah, Putin is to blame for everything. Right. And, you know, without a doubt, uh, we had about a 20 percent spike on um, on energy prices because of the invasion. Now, energy had been going up ever since Biden came into office. So, you know, of course, he's going to grab whatever's in the headline. He's had as a scapegoat. Now, at this point, it looks like energy prices are coming back down. Uh, now, the main reason they're coming back down is because the world economy is going off a cliff. Right. So whenever you have a recession or a depression, uh, commodity prices go down because nobody's buying them. So oil may come down. Copper may come down. 
a bunch of these uh, sort of industrial commodities are probably going to come down if the economy goes into a crash. But of course, that's ideally not how we would fix inflation. Now, you use the R word, recession. We're hearing that, you know, a, a recession is not inevitable. Your thoughts on whether or not we're heading to one? We have to have, what, two consecutive quarters of of um, underwater uh, economic growth. Are we headed into a recession and uh, and or could it be avoided? It is always possible that they'll avoid it. The consensus, even from people in the Federal Reserve, is that uh, almost certainly we're going to have a recession at some point. The Fed has not historically been very good at steering around what they're calling a soft landing. Uh, so, you know, across Wall Street, across the Federal Reserve, uh, we are most likely going to get one. Uh, the question is just how bad is it? So, you know, can the Fed sort of um, engineer things and uh, squeeze us through, uh, or are we going to head to a genuine crash? In the 1970s, in order to end that inflation, which is very similar to today's, they had to jack rates up to about 19 percent. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, you could more, uh, you know, if you imagine paying a 19 uh, percent on your mortgage, uh, well, it'd actually be over 20 percent. Uh, I mean, that just really crushed people. Uh, it crushed jobs. It crushed incomes. Uh, people saw their savings melt away. So that's you know, we hope it's not going to get that bad, but the way they're going, uh, it looks quite a lot like the 1970s. And we're hearing that the Fed is planning on raising the interest rate and perhaps dramatically so. That is the trick, is that the Fed knows from the 1970s playbook that it has to push up interest rates quickly. The difference is that in the 1970s, we didn't have nearly this much debt, and especially we didn't have this much debt in financial markets. Right. And so what the Fed is afraid of is that if they push rates up too much, they're going to break something. They have no idea what they're going to break. But, you know, in the 2008 crisis that came out of what mortgage backed securities and collateralized. Nobody was looking at these things. All right. They just came out of the blue. And the Fed does not know what gremlins are lurking in this massive, massively indebted financial system. So that's really the sort of the parlor game is they want to see how high they can hike before they break something. If they break something, then, of course, they're going to lay off and just let inflation run. But at that point, are we looking at a 1970s style? It was really nearly a depression. Are we looking at that combined with a 2008 style financial crisis? And on that rosy note. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you. But it's a beautiful day outside. <laughs> it is. Remember, family is what matters much more than all this mumbo jumbo. And the flowers are in bloom. Peter St. Ange, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye bye. Again, Peter St. Ange is a research fellow at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Coming up next, we have a conversation with Carlos and Rosemary Evans. Their book, Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you can imagine, sustaining a military marriage is pretty hard work, especially when deployments keep a family separated for long periods of time. The strain is intensified when the serving spouse is injured in the field. And according to the PTSD Foundation of America, an estimated two out of three marriages fail for troops suffering from combat trauma. 
Carlos Evans and Rosemarie Evans are well aware of the difficulties, having experienced them personally. And in their book, Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love, they share their inspirational story of facing severe injury, rehabilitation, post-traumatic stress disorder, and addiction. Theirs is a true story of hope and courage in the face of astonishing challenges. Now, Sergeant uh, Carlos Evans, retired, is a minister with the Assemblies of God USA, a wounded warrior spokesman, and a motivational speaker. Born in Puerto Rico, he was an avid athlete through his high school and college years. At university, he studied theology, was very active in his church. When the tragic events of September 11th occurred, he felt compelled to join the family legacy of service in the U.S. Marines and originally planned to join as a chaplain. He served three tours of duty in Iraq and was assigned in Afghanistan for his fourth deployment, when in May of 2010, everything changed. Rosemarie Evans, also a native of Puerto Rico, is an experienced nurse. She's now a full-time caregiver and student working toward a master's degree in marriage and family uh, from Liberty University. Carlos and Maria, they live in Orlando, Florida, with their two daughters. And uh, they join us today to talk about a remarkable story and their book, Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Carlos and Rosemary. I am so honored to have you with us today. Uh, how you doing? Thank you very much. Well, Carlos, let me begin with you. You grew up in a military family, and after 9-11, you felt that uh, it demanded some sort of response. Tell us a little bit about what led you to enlist um, the eight years you served uh, uh, and the eight years you served as a U.S. Marine. Well, I remember where I was uh, when 9-11 happened. And uh, a couple years later, uh, I was in uh, Bible college, and I was watching the news, and I saw the Marines in, in Iraq. And I just felt strongly in my heart that I needed to be there at that time. So I went to the recruiting station, and uh, yeah, I joined the Marine Corps. No regrets. No regrets. You were on your fourth deployment, uh, this time in Afghanistan, when in May of 2010, something happened. Tell our listeners what happened. Yeah, I was leading a foot patrol, a sergeant of the Marine Corps. And while leading uh, this patrol, this mission, I stepped on an IED, an improvised explosive device. Uh, I lost both of my legs immediately above my knees, lost part of my left uh, arm, and my left hand was amputated uh, due to the explosion. I have many scars in my body due to that explosion. Mm. Now, you were a believer at the time. You're a believer today. And as you thought about your service, having served for four deployments, which is pretty extraordinary in and of itself, you always assumed that God would protect you. You weren't concerned about injury. You weren't concerned about um, uh, being killed in uh, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Uh, and you had said to family and friends that you weren't, you weren't going to die there, um, that God had a bigger purpose for your life. In retrospect, now some might say, well, God obviously failed. In retrospect, how do you interpret what happened and what you believed prior to what happened? Well, what happened was that due to to the experience, I believe today that the Lord made me stronger. I believe that because today I'm a better father, I'm a better husband, I'm a better person. Now, before the injury, uh, I never thought this would happen to me, something like this was going to happen to me. Because growing up, you know, that's that's what I thought as a Christian, you know, 
you know, stuff like like this don't happen to Christians, you know. Well, we will interpret it as a negative experience. That's what I thought. So my faith was was shaken because I didn't understand what was God, you know, where was God, what 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 He was doing. So my faith was yes, it was shaken. Mm. And yet, that statement that you made, God has a bigger purpose for my life. Uh, that that statement stands. Now let me um, let me talk to uh, to you, Rosemary. You are a trained nurse, and so you're you're used to caring for uh, people in need. What were your thoughts when Carlos decided he was going to sign up? Uh, he was going to become a Marine and serve his country following events of nine eleven. Um, I knew uh, Carlos, and we got married uh, when he was milit- in the military already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew that he's gonna you know the, he's gonna go to war. I know that. I know there's a lot of danger over there. But really, really, I never expected uh, something like this to happen. You know, I, I always thought that he's going to come back from war and everything's going to be fine. I never expected that he's going to come back injured. Even that he always, um, before he went to Afghanistan, he always told me, do you see Marines in front of the house? That means that something really, really bad happened to me. So you have to be prepared for that. But really, uh, we were believers. So I think sometimes I just, uh, I was so uh, normal thinking, okay, nothing's going to happen to him because we are believers and God's going to take care of him all the time. Yeah. Um, but we forgot that, you know, sometimes we're going to go to trouble, mm-hmm. even that we, we are believers. You went to see your husband at Bethesda Hospital, and it was, even though you had nursing training, it was an eye-opening um, experience to see so many wounded service members uh, come back and, and uh, families who were affected. When you saw your husband, what were your th- first thoughts about about him and about your future together? Uh, when I saw my husband, I was happy that he, uh, you know, he come back alive. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when they give me the news, the first thing that I told God was like, God, you know, I don't mind he don't, he don't have his legs. I just want him to come back alive. So God uh, hear my my prayer, so He bring him back alive. So I was happy for that. And as a nurse, I was ready to, you know, what what I expected to see, see my my husband intubated, connected to a ventilator. I know everything like that. But I was afraid that he's gonna have like some brain injury. But I remember when I went inside the room that he looked at me and he started crying. And when mm-hmm. he started crying, I knew that he recognized me. So I start, you know, giving praise to God, and, and I was thankful that he was alive. Now you have two daughters, and caring for your husband along with your two daughters daughters had to have been a daunting task. Uh, when Carlos was released from the hospital, and when, while you were uh, helping to care for him there, how did you manage your family? Uh, at the beginning, it was very, very hard. Uh, the first month that Carlos was hospitalized, uh, I had to leave my daughters three months with another person, you know, with friend, family, friends, mm-hmm. taking care of them so I can be in the hospital all the time with Carlos. Well, when they moved them out from the hospital to an apartment, uh, I just want to start our, our new normal, you know, our new family normal, what we're going to do every day. So what we do is we do routines. We try to wake up very early, try to get everybody ready. And and we start to do routines so we can get back to our new normal life. And it was hard at the beginning, but then you know, with the with the help of family and friends, they were they were always over there. Somebody like God always put somebody to to help us during this process. Yeah. We were not alone. 
Now, many marriages have crumbled under the weight of, of trials that are far less life altering than what the two of you have been through. Uh, you came out the other side stronger um, as you write about it. Can you share some of the decisions that the two of you made along the way to fight for your marriage despite this unexpected alteration? Well, in 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 my case, it it was very hard because I didn't love myself at that time. Because here I am with a new body mm-hmm. that I didn't want. So I didn't love myself. And it was very hard to express love to others. But I had a breakthrough in my life. I remember when I was ready to ready to give up and in my life and in, in my marriage. I remember I, I tell Rosemary, why don't you continue with your life and I'll just stay here in Washington, D.C. And Rosemary just stared at me and told me, when they notified me of your injury, what happened to you, I prayed to God to bring you back home alive and you are here alive. I'm not a widow and my daughters are not orphans. Hmm. And right there, I was like, you, you can't love me because look at all my wounds. Or you just saying that because of pity. And she said, that's the difference between you and me. I don't see wounds, I only see scars. Because I only see scars because I know who healed your wounds, and that is Jesus. And at that moment, uh, looking at her, I was thinking, that is the way God sees me. And she was just showing me love. She was embracing my wounds. She told me, Jesus is the center of our lives. And I love you for the man you're gonna be, for the man you are today for the man you're going to be tomorrow. And that was a breakthrough. Loving someone when they're wounded. Loving someone when they come back home and they're not being the person that, you know, you married. You know, finding, you know, that love in the middle of, of the storm. And Rosemary saw the best of me when I was wounded. So that. That was, you know, that began in my life, the healing process. Mm. You accept myself for who I am because I felt love. You have and an incredible, faith. incredible wife. <laughs> we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Carlos and Rosemary Evans. The book is Standing Together, The Inspirational Story of a Wounded Warrior and Enduring Love. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with a remarkable couple, Carlos Evans and Rosemary Evans. They are the co-authors of Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. Now, just before the break, Carlos told us what uh, helped him to recognize his value, uh, not only to you and into your marriage, but that God could see him and value him in his his uh, altered condition. Let me ask you, Rosemary, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges um, you faced with your new normal? Uh, my biggest challenge, I think it was, you know, receiving my husband with a different attitude because, uh, okay, he come back without legs and okay. I can understand that. But when he started being different, you know, the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and he started, like, acting uh, different than he was, he was very depressive, he was suicidal, he, he was anger all the time. So uh, it was hard in those moments to, to, you know, I was asking God, like, God, I asked you to bring him back, but now he's different. How, mm-hmm. are, how are we going to handle this? Uh, that was one, one of the difficult decisions that we had to do, and 
And always uh, when he went to give up, I was trying to encourage him to continue. You know, I was, uh, when he was feeling like weak, that he couldn't do nothing, I just remind him that we need him in our family, that he was part of our family, that that maybe he was weak at that moment, but he's still the head of our family. So uh, he has his daughter, he has a wife, and we can continue life, you know, in a different way, but we're going to continue. Um, yeah. Yeah. I should mention that um, Carlos came home with post-traumatic stress disorder and then became addicted to pain-killing drugs, which I would imagine had to have been a very challenging element of, of trying to establish a new normal because while his physical disabilities were, were obvious, these other wounds that were brought home are more challenging because mm-hmm. uh, they, they show up at unexpected times and in ways that, that you can't really prepare for. How did you deal with that, both um, you and Carlos? Well, um, for uh, me, oh, Carlos. Go ahead, Carlos, and then we'll have Rosemary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, in, in my life, I... I started to look at myself through the mirror of the cross hmm. and looking at myself through the mirror of the cross meant that I, that I wasn't a victim of an IED, that I wasn't a victim of my injuries, that in Jesus Christ, I'm a conqueror and that if I was alive, it was for a purpose. So as my physical body was healing, my heart began to heal. And it's always a healing process. Every day I got to go to the cross and look at myself through that mirror. Mm-hmm. But through looking at myself through that mirror, you know, I didn't see myself as Carlos, you are incomplete. I see myself as complete because Jesus fulfills everything in our lives. So that was key to stepping up and being the father that I needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Stepping up and being the husband that I needed to be. Rosemary, how would you respond to that uh, that question? Uh, for me, I think the best way that that we handled this it was through prayer. Um, I think this situation, uh, especially for me, it was uh, to gain intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it moved me from a mediocre uh, relationship with God through a really a good one with God, you know. And I started to feel that I was not so sufficient. And right now, I needed God to intervene in my family. So my prayer uh, was like, it, 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 the intimacy with God grows so much that I think that was the key for me for for handling a lot of the situation that, that comes during the process. And also, uh, it helped all the family. It affected everybody in the family because if I do a, a wrong decision, it's going to affect my husband and my daughters. So I always pray to God to give me wisdom and he gave me the wisdom for for deal with with some of the situations. When did the and two? Be, a, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Carlos. No, and we had a lot of help. We had a lot of doctors, yes. nurses, volunteers, a lot of support for many people. But opening our hearts to let people help me, you know, sometimes that ego. Yeah, I don't want help from anyone. Oh, yeah. So opening my heart, you know, to the body of Christ to to help me. And, and receive that love. Amen. Now, when did you realize that God was preparing uh, the two of you for full-time ministry, and what doors started to open for you? Well, it, we, we as time went by, uh, we just started sharing, you know, our experience with other people. 
and realize that that pain didn't only touch, you know, people that were in the military that were injured. That pain touches everybody. And that there are people that were broken, not so, not only physically, but emotionally. So as we're sharing, you know, with other people, we just saw, you know, what the Lord was doing in their lives. And we were just showing the people who was our, who, who's our healer. And just doors started, doors started to open, you know, and, and where we lived and the hot capital at the White House and all over the world, we just started speaking at different churches in our local church and just, just doors started opening and we were just amazed what the Lord w- was doing with our scars. You know, our tears became our platform. Mm. I'm reminded of what you had said before your injuries happened. You said, God has a bigger purpose for my life. And I think like so many of us, we imagine that that purpose requires us to be physically whole or to to be free of suffering of any kind. Uh, and yet through all of that, God is using you in ways that exceed, I'm certain, your expectations. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm amazed by uh, by his grace that that's why I see what happened to me in May 17, 2010, as a blessing in disguise. Mm. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. You say that standing has nothing to do with having feet. What do you mean by that? It's such a profound statement uh, said by someone who lost both feet. Oh, well, I remember one day my daughter was five years old, and she's playing in the, in the apartment where we were living. And she's telling me, Poppy, you know, now you run, you run, run, Poppy, run. And I, I told her, oh, I'm tired. And I went to her in my room and I started crying mm. because I thought to myself, I'm going to be able to run with my daughter. And my wife tells me, Rosemary tells me, well, you're looking at it the wrong way. She sees you as Poppy, that you could do everything. And right there, I'm like, you know what? Standing doesn't have to do anything with it having feet. It has to do for doing and, and, and believing in God's purpose in your life. Standing up for your family, standing up for your purpose, standing up for your community. You know, I you don't need I don't need legs to leave a footprint in someone's life. I don't need two hands, you know, to touch someone. All I need is faith. And that's why I say today. Today I have one hand, and I'm touching more people than when I had two. Hmm. Today I don't have feet, but I'm leaving more footprints than when I had feet. Yes. Because all I need is faith and a heart, and be sensible to the needs of others. Hmm. Can you share um, what has become your motto? Yeah, that is my motto. Touching lives, leaving footprints. Hmm. Look at everybody that's around you the reflection of the mirror of the cross. When you see someone through that mirror, you don't see them as incomplete. You see them as complete. I may look broken, but when you see me through that mirror, you can see God's purpose. Yes. Now, Rosemarie, you're now a full-time caregiver. You're a student. You're working toward a master's degree in marriage and family uh, from Liberty University. You have two daughters. You have a very full life. You are loving your husband and your family well. As you look back, um, what do you make of what God has done over this uh, period of time since Carlos' uh, disability? What I see is God has made miracles in our life, 
You know, I'm grateful for the miracles. And every day uh, I wake up with a miracle. So I'm thanking God because he's been with us all, all through this situation. And he's going to still with us uh, for whatever is coming in the future. So I'm happy for everything that God has made for us. Mm. A heart of gratitude. Where can people learn more about Touching Lives, Leaving Footprints, and uh, C.R. Evans Ministries? Well, they can visit our website, crevans.org, and that will lead you to all our social media. And I would uh, certainly suggest that people do that, as well as read the book, Standing Together, The Inspirational Story of a Wounded Warrior and Enduring Love. You know, I have an opportunity as a host of a program like this to talk with people from all across the country and places around the world I will never visit. But I want to let you know how honored I am to have the opportunity to speak to the two of you. And Carlos, how grateful I am for the service that you rendered to our country at great cost. But I guess I'm most grateful for the fact that you, as followers of Jesus, have decided to press into him and to allow him to rewrite your story and to use you in ways that would not have been possible had your injuries not occurred. I I just am so grateful for the two of you and just pray that your ministry will continue to flourish as you are led and listen to him. Amen. Amen. Thank Thank you. you Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you both. God bless you. Bye-bye. What a remarkable story from a remarkable couple. Again, the book is Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. There's a picture of the two of them on the, the front cover. And inside the book, you see pictures of Carlos, who was a strong, tall, strapping, handsome man. Uh, who, you know, you would have looked at and thought, well, he, he's got to be an athlete. He might, uh, you know, play for the NFL. To be absent his legs, one hand, and the use of one arm, and to see him following Jesus with such confidence, it just uh, it touches uh, my heart and challenges me with all my uh, physical and other faculties to serve him. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest a... Um, an account of the uh, Teachers Union Convention by Brenda Lebsack. She attended, and uh, she said preferred pronouns and more were really on the on the docket. And I wanted to share her observation. She writes that, as a teacher, I attended the National Education Association Convention last week, and my worst fears were confirmed. Now, the article is dated July 12th. Public schools are no longer a safe place for families who hold traditional values or for families who believe gender, as in male-female binary, is biologically determined. It was also evident that teachers' unions is a lobbying arm for the Democratic Party. The NEA seemed to think there are many gender options, and that's why teachers and students must always address themselves with their preferred pronouns. It thinks uh, this pronoun practice is essential and will create a more inclusive society. That was demonstrated firsthand when each state delegate who spoke during the three-day convention, July the 4th through the 6th, was encouraged to state his or her name and preferred pronouns before addressing the assembly. Pronouns, I heard, were he, she, they, and hex. One delegate even pronounced they had a uterus before addressing the assembly, apparently because that was something we all needed to know. She goes on in the teachers union preamble. It says NEA is to be the national voice for education managed by and for the public good to advance the cause for all individuals 
end quote. However, as I read the 70 new business items and 40 amendments of bylaws legislation and resolutions and listened to the platform speeches, it was obvious the NAA only represents those who hold the same ideologies and radical leftist political views. From what I observed, the NEA's goal is for public education to be a training ground for political activism, while demonizing anyone, including students and their families, who um, does not share those same political or sociological beliefs. The NEA does not want public education to be neutral ground in developing critical thinkers with an emphasis on academic achievement. Its priorities were apparent. Because of the 110 motions discussed and voted on, only four remotely addressed student academic achievement. Those four dealt with student financial literacy and resources for English learners and language acquisition. Nearly half of the motions dealt with identity politics, social justice, and ways to promote the goals of the Democratic Party. Some examples, broad-brushing police as biased and corrupt, mocking the Second Amendment as a societal harm, fighting for preferential treatment for any and all groups considered uh, marginalized, especially non-conforming genders and infinite sex identities, fighting misinformation in the media, that is, any media outlets that do not agree with their views, increasing abortion rights, adding seats to the Supreme Court and advocating for more queer representation on school boards. Some other outlier items addressed environmental issues, hiring illegal immigrants as teachers, funding resource concern uh, concerning autism as it relates to gender identity and funding global feeding programs. Close to 40 percent of the motions were related to protecting teachers' jobs and increasing their benefits and their right to be social justice cadres. Although the NEA says it fights for non-discrimination and civil rights, the only state delegates able to attend the Chicago event in person were those fully vaccinated. Any teacher who didn't have vaccination cards could only attend virtually, regardless of whether they tested negative for COVID-19 or their reasons for not getting the shots. The vaccinated delegates who attended in person had all expenses paid for by their union local, while unvaccinated teachers were excluded and stigmatized as a harm to attendees. For a group that screams, my body, my choice, the double standard is appalling. She goes on, and again, I'm quoting from an article written by Brenda Lebsack, a teacher who attended the uh, convention. On a positive note, the NEA voted down a new business item trying to mandate that all teachers in the uh, the nation be vaccinated. It lost, with 84% of the vote opposing. Vice President Kamala Harris addressed the gathering on the 5th of July and repeatedly called Republican leaders in Washington extremists. The NEA's executive director, Kim Anderson, said the Supreme Court has removed the right to marry someone of a different race. That's flat out false. She went on to say the Supreme Court and a significant number of radicalized elected officials have walked away from freedom for all for an extreme discriminatory, exclusionary, misogynist, homophobic, out of touch, racist, cruel, corrupt ideology. That's a lot. Shortly after Anderson's remarks, um, she, the writer of the article, spoke up during a debate opposing a new business item to create a smear list of organizations seeking to dismantle public education due to diminished freedoms of sexual and gender identities and honest education, a smokescreen for critical race theory. Her virtual statement was this. I, Brenda Lebsack, 
oppose the new business item 15. NEA says they strive for a safe school climate for all. Yet forget that, according to the 2021 Pew Research, 56% of Americans believe gender is based on biology, uh, biological reality. NEA does not believe this. NEA believes that a child can choose their gender based on their feelings and that there are infinite options and pronouns. How can public schools be a safe place for all students when NEA leaders demonize over half of the families represented in our public schools? If NEA creates a fact sheet of the organizations dismantling public education, please include the NEA on that list. As founder of the Interfaith Statewide Coalition and a teacher in California, I can tell you that many Orthodox Muslims, Jews, Catholics and Christians no longer feel public schools are a safe place. Your social justice goals to assault family cultures that do not match your own and to use public education to propagate extremist views is wrong. This is an abuse of power. That's why I, as a teacher, support parental rights and school choice. End quote. I was tempted to state my preferred pronouns as communism, <laughs> but I resisted the urge to do so. In conclusion, with respect to almost everything the NEA accuses others of doing, it is one of the biggest offenders. America is in desperate need of educational reform because this powerful union, the National Education Association, has a delusional messiah complex and is using teachers and students as its political pawns. A rather interesting piece, again, written by Brenda Lebsack, who is a teacher in California and is also the uh, the leader of an organization that represents um, choice and education and fairness. Interfaith Statewide Coalition is the name. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing uh, most of today's program and Sam Maupin for engineering the remainder of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.